Hello and welcome to Stories for Grace Renee. This is an oral history podcast. In this series you will hear stories of the lives of our family as told to my daughter Grace Renee. The stories cover four generations, three continents and a huge variety of topics. I asked Grace if she wanted to make an intro for this podcast series and she did. Here's what she had to say. I love to be with my family all day, but don't forget, I also have my friends at school, and then the tea with. Today's story is with Grace's grandpa. He's from Nigeria, but spent the first 14 years of his life living in the Cameroon, and it's some memories of that time that he's sharing as his story today. All right, I'd like to tell the story of my first 14 years of my life. I'm sharing this because it's pretty unique in the sense that the place of my birth was on the, my parents' home. Um, I was born in the coastal city of Victoria, now known as Limbe, in the British, what used to be the British Cameroon, which is approximately 50 miles from the foot of the Cameroon mountain. My birth date, I later found out that that was towards the end of World War II. This fact impacts my story as it helps to explain why my parents, who were citizens of Nigeria at the time of my birth, were serving as expertise for the government of British colonized Nigeria in the then British Cameroons. My siblings, 11 of them, and I ended up being born in the Cameroons. And my mother traveled to Nigeria from time to time at that time. And um, that's where she gave birth to five of my siblings. And as a result, another five were in the Cameroons. We lived in one set building that had just two rooms, a kitchen, and um, most of us slept on the floor with no mattress, but a, what we call a mat made up of bamboo. And um, those in Nigeria, the other five, lived under the same one roof 
a room for our parents, the open room where we generally slept and did much of our activities. So it was very congested, but at that time it was comfortable to us because that's all we know. So the living quarters were just single set of building with two rooms and we were all in the same one general room most of the time. Towards the western part of the building was the kitchen. It's, it does not resemble anything like the kitchen that we know today. It was made up of a set of woods and um, we had no refrigerator and everything was done at that corner in cooking and it's it contained woods that was set in such a way that you can place your pot on it and we use that for the for cooking most of what we did. What he's describing here is traditional open flame cooking using a three stone fire. Since a lot of people might not be familiar with that style of cooking, I've included some pictures and information in the show notes, both on the, the fire itself and also the kind of foods that are cooked in it, um, just to help you imagine more what their kitchen was like. Um, we used the same wood to roast some of the yams and some of the other kinds of food that was not to be cooked in a pot. And I know today that's a strange way of, some folks are still doing it in some African countries in the rural areas. We do not, we did not have any stove. We did not have any refrigerator. And um, most of the things were preserved in salt in order to last for days. But my mother knew how to cook it and preserve it. And of course, we cooked frequently because we could not preserve it too long to eat several plates of any food that was cooked. And what kind of things would you eat typically? Well, the diet includes pounded yam, which is boiled first and then pounded. Pounded fufu, we call, call it generally fufu, F-O-O-F-O-O. But also, we had what we call gari, which we turned into fufu by boiling it, by using a boiled water to soak the gari and then mash the gari to turn to a fufu. And then we had all kinds of soups to eat it with. And would you have any sauces with that? Yes. Well, we had dipping sauce separately 
and that separate dipping sauce will contain vegetables, fish, or meat, all kinds of meat, cow meat, and um, a few other animals' meat that were eaten at that particular time. And of course, chicken was also, we grew the chicken ourselves and we grew eggs from the chicken and occasionally we killed some of the chicken for food. And where was the bathroom in the house? Okay, we had, it's like creating a fence um, with an opening that was covered with a piece of cloth so that you have your privacy when you carry a bucket of water, there was no shower into that area and you had your bath, I won't call it shower. And then um, in for lavatory, they have to dig a hole that was built in such a way you can just stoop and um, and use it. And that was about a few yards from the main building. That must have been quite difficult to take a, a nighttime trip to the bathroom. I'd have been worried about snakes or other animals out there in the dark. Yes, you take it. There is, it's like a torch. You use a torch, you know, and then um, they had torches in those days. And somebody had to accompany you to make sure that, like you said, animals or snakes. But there were many at that time in the area where we live because it's a larger community. So I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You talked about your mother traveling to Nigeria. Were you raised by your father then? Um. In my case, particularly, and a few others who lived in the Cameroons, well, my mother, we were brought up by both, except that my mother spent some time traveling back to Nigeria to take care of our land, to do some farming for those who were in Nigeria. And when she does, it was our father and the, sibling, the four other siblings in the Cameroons, and we were attempting to play the role that my mother played whenever she came back. And she generally came back with a baby. And then shortly thereafter, some of my siblings will be sent back to Nigeria to continue schooling while those of us who remain in the 
in Victoria. Um, also went to school with my father. In other words, my mother was traveling to and fro, but she spent a little bit more time in Nigeria growing food and taking care of my other um, siblings. So your family had a farm in Nigeria? Yes, we have acres of land. I'll say about three or four acres that were given to my mother by my grandfather. It was traditional that my grandfather would give farmlands to to the um, wives of his children. And so she had to travel back to Nigeria to grow the farms and to take care of those siblings over in Nigeria. It was a very interesting combination, but at that time, um, we were just young and didn't know the details. It must have been hard being without her for such long periods. You must have missed her a lot. Oh yes, missed her very much. And when she came, um, she didn't spend but few months and had to go back to Nigeria during farm seasons. So we missed her, but we, since there were three or four of us in the Cameroons at that time, um, we didn't miss her too much. And I had um, a very strict father who, of course, disciplined us so much that we were busy going to school, doing some chores at home. And so we didn't miss her that much. We missed her when we were younger, but at the age of four, five, or six, um, we became used to that type of life. And were you able to communicate with her? Could you write her letters or anything while she's away? Oh, yeah, we communicated. Now, that's another issue. In the Cameroons, we were exposed to three different languages. We, the language of my parents are Igbo. So when she's around, we use Igbo. But when we go out to play outside, we are tempted to learn the language of the natives called Bakweri, Bakweri. And then of course, we spoke English in school. And um, it's interesting to note that in terms of language, English was used at school. And there was a policy of all the schools from kindergarten to speak English when you are around school premises. And so we were struggling 
in grades one, two, and three to learn how to speak and write English, spoke Igbo at home, spoke backwary. When we are with our friends outside playing soccer and a few other games, it was tough. You have to learn it as quickly as you can. If not, your communication will be blurred and folks will not understand each other. But the hardest part was speaking English. And when you caught at school, speaking any other language, that's how strict the schools were at that time. Um, you would be punished one way or the other. Even if you were talking to like your sibling? Yes. If the two siblings are on campus, you cannot speak your language. Part of the reason also is that most of the st students spoke different languages. As I said earlier, it was an international town or city. And we had all the Germans and the French and the Dutch. Their children were also attending the school and some other African countries whose language is not the same as Igbo. This was part of the reason they set up the policy from what I understood later. And so you were, if you're talking to your siblings at school, you must talk English. Was your dad working in English? Yes. My, my dad is, was an engineer, mechanical engineer, so he spoke English and Igbo. And of course, he knew two other Nigerian languages, Hausa and Yoruba. But at home, we spoke Igbo. But at work, I'm sure he spoke English because um, he had all these foreign workers with him from these other countries of the world. And which language did you find easier? Oh, at that time, they were all difficult to tell you the truth, but the Igbo was easier because when my father is at home, my mother is at home, and we were all together, we spoke Igbo. But once you step out to go to school, you're forced to speak English. So I did my best to <laughs> study English and know how to speak English. So I'll say both Igbo and English came a little bit easier because I spoke English at school and spoke Igbo at home. Now, there is another twist to that question. Because we were bent on making good grades at school, so I spent more time, or we spent more time speaking English. So when we spoke Igbo, it, it wasn't the classical Igbo. So whenever we went on vacation, went back to Nigeria on vacation, we had difficulty Speaking Igbo to the Igbos, the kids would be laughing at us because we just couldn't speak it well. But when he came to English, we would speak English. So they teased us to say, oh, look at that English boy. 
is now coming to talk English because some of them didn't understand English because they spoke more Igbo than we did. So we find ourselves being embarrassed from time to time trying to learn um, Igbo. And do you know that when I registered, when I went back to Nigeria in the boarding school, that's where the, the school, high school I mean, the high school taught Igbo as a language. I had to enroll to learn Igbo and to be fluent in Igbo as well as to write Igbo. But English has pervaded my life. So I think in English, but when I'm with the, with Igbo people, I make effort to speak Igbo. As a matter of fact, now some of the Igbo people around here that whenever I attend their meeting, were surprised that given my background, I could speak Igbo fluently. So th that language pervaded my, my upbringing and- And what, what was it about your Igbo that they found strange? Did you have a strong accent or did you have a limited vocabulary? What, what was different about you? Limited, limited vocabulary than, than anything else. So I had to introduce English words in between certain Igbo words, and that sounded ridiculous to die-hard Igbos. Oh, so you would pepper your sentence with English words when you weren't sure of the Igbo word? That's right, okay. and it's, it's not proper to the Igbo man to do so. And I see some of the folks, the Igbos that I meet here, they doing it. I don't know how they came up with a few in English words, but that's a no-no if you really want to be a quote Igbo man, to be authentic as an Igbo man. Don't put any English word between your Igbo sentences. It's it's ridiculous, but it makes sense. Now, apart from just the sheer complexity of having to communicate in all these different languages, can you describe um, what what life was like for you as a child growing up day to day? Now, generally, when I was growing up, before I became 14, um, my... I did not play much with my friends outside my home. The reason for that is the strictness of my undisciplined father. He had a different notion of our neighbors. And so he never let us out of the house to play in the neighborhood as much as we could play at school. And um, I remember that vividly because we could be looking through the window as our friends played soccer and many other types of game. And um, that was a little difficult to, to handle, but we did. 
because if he found you, especially on Sunday, he was he was uh, very strict in terms of going to church and the rest of them, and so he never let us play. If you want to play, he wants you to play inside the house. I thought that's an interesting remembrance for me. He wants to he wants to see you read and um, do your homework and nothing else. But whenever he left the house, of course, we played other kinds of games and we could if he if he would be away for a, a little while say a day or two because he traveled to to other series of the Cameroons at that time then we can go out and play but that's very rare it was very hard and that's why I swore that if I had kids I will not be so strict because that's stifling in the growth of any child. But that's what we all grew up with. But when you were at school, for example, were you allowed to play then? Did you get to play soccer and other things? Oh, yes. Yes, we followed the regulation during recess and during... There was one... Well, they made us do some exercise in between classes, especially in the afternoon, if not playing soccer. Playing soccer was the biggest game we ever played. And I remember clearly, and some athletic activities such as um, track and a few other Olympic type games. Since we had no outlet at home, we capitalized on all the activities that we were exposed to at school. And so did you, were there any sports you particularly enjoyed doing? Um, soccer. I most likely like to play soccer. And I was playing, I was the goalie. So, yep, I was the goalie. And my friends, usually when we choose partners to play, they always choose me so that I can protect the goalpost. Yeah, that's not normally a popular role. <laughs> no, it's not. Only a few folks knew can do that well. And so since that's what I grew up to with, rather, I... I enjoyed being the goalie. Now, this week we're going to do something a bit different. There's more to Grace's grandpa's story than we can fit into one episode. So we're going to pause his story right here and we're going to pick it up again in two weeks' time. Hope you can join us then for the rest of the story.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories for Grace Renee. If you're enjoying this podcast series, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and think about leaving us a review so that others can find us. Also, a huge thank you to Audio Nautics for this version of Amazing Grace that we're using as our theme tune. And most of all, thank you to the family of Grace Renee. Thank you for your stories, your warmth, your laughter, and your love. Thank you.